If there was ever a worldwide political problem that generates plenty of slogans but few solutions, it's mass migration. Now I'm here in America to talk about a critical and shared global challenge, uncontrolled and illegal migration. Some people call it an invasion. It's like an invasion. It's an existential challenge for the political and cultural institutions of the West. Many, many people uh, from Syria, Egypt, uh, sent me messages with photos of, of people uh, in the boat. They asked me if they are dead or alive. It was a scene of utter desperation that confronted staff at Tilbury Docks after the alarm was raised. Screaming and banging had been heard coming from inside a container. The United Nations says right now more than 100 million people around the world have been forcibly displaced as a result of persecution, conflict, violence and human rights violations. As the world heats up and droughts, floods and wildfires increase, millions more will face the same choice, move or suffer. But across the globe, hundreds of millions more simply want what we all want, a better life. It's tragic, but to us it's not shocking. Every day, literally, we are getting people coming into our offices crying and upset about the fact that they've been told by the Home Office that they have to leave. So they're being left absolutely destitute. They can't access any funds. They're not allowed to work. Basically, every human right has been removed from them. There's nothing new in this monumental row. In the 1980s, Margaret Thatcher complained Britain was being swamped by people of a different culture. Donald Trump said he would build a wall and make Mexico pay for it. And now in the Netherlands, Geert Wilders has won a big endorsement from Dutch voters on an anti-migrant platform. At Westminster, British politics is again in turmoil with the resignation of the immigration minister Robert Jenrick over the ill-fated and so far unworkable Rwanda plan. While in Washington, Republicans in Congress threaten to cut off aid to Ukraine unless their stop immigration demands are met. And so, beyond the dog whistles and phony solutions, what can be done to cut immigration and avoid a far-right backlash? I'm Gavin Esler, and this is Not A Drill. First, a bit of my own family history. In the 17th century, the Esslers were Protestants who escaped Catholic Bavaria during the Thirty Years' War. They were immigrants, refugees from Germany. They met the Scottish army near Lübeck and settled in Scotland, and we were in good company. Queen Victoria's first language was German. Her husband, Prince Albert, was a migrant. Nobody stopped his boat. And the British royal family's original name was Saxa Coburg Gotha, not Windsor. Donald Trump's grandfather, Frederick, migrated to the United States from Germany in the 19th century. While in 20th century Britain, politicians including former Home Secretary Suella Braverman and Prime Minister Rishi Sunak also have migrant roots. Politicians, of course, often say they can fix the problem. But can they? And what exactly is the problem that needs fixing? 
Professor Heinde Haas is a Dutch sociologist and geographer who's lived and worked in the Netherlands, Morocco and the UK and is currently professor at the University of Amsterdam. He's a founding member of the International Migration Institute at the University of Oxford and his book How Migration Really Works, a factual guide to the most divisive issue in politics, suggests politicians cannot solve the political problem of migration without creating an economic problem low growth. Is that the choice we'll have to make? We'll get to the wider issues in a moment, Hein, if we can. But if I were to try to sum up why politicians don't get it, despite the fact that actually most politicians are pretty smart, I could do so with probably two words. They would be Gert Wilders, yeah. populist leader who doesn't want migration and so on. And he's done very well. And that actually has been the story of Nigel Farage and people in Britain and Donald Trump in the United States. In other words, it is a vote winner. It is a vote winner, but it is very dishonest. And I think it's time the public understands that right-wing or extreme right-wing governments even don't pursue more restrictive immigration policies. Look at Italy right now. Meloni is very tough on immigration rhetorics but she's letting in record numbers of labor migrants and she's proposing to legalize half a million undocumented migrants. Viktor Orban is also importing more and more migrant workers because they're needed for the economy. So in that sense, I think we need to become more aware of the huge gap between what politicians say and do. And of course, on top of that, they create this image of the foreigner as, as the one who takes away jobs and services, which is arguably not true. But it is also true that most people who benefit from migration or benefit most from migration are already well off in society. But it is not true that immigration, we have so much research on this also in the UK, that for instance, immigration undermines the welfare state. There's simply no evidence for that. Most migrants bring in more in terms of taxes uh, and other contributions to the state and they actually take out. Clearly, there is, however, something wrong with the idea of people risking their lives on the sea paying money to people traffickers who are criminals and coming into countries where they are they may be seeking asylum they're not necessarily illegal because it depends how you how you define that but uh, but they are perhaps undocumented or they don't have the right permission to come in so what should we do about that given that it's a humanitarian disaster which may get even worse because of the war in Syria the trouble in the Sahel what's going on in in Ethiopia and Eritrea and so on yeah, now, first of all, I think one uh, one thing to mention is that there is no global increase in refugee migration, as many people think. But, of course, things go up and down and there are crises we have to deal with. I think in terms of, let's focus on the Mediterranean, um, you deal with two things. Of course, there's an element of humanitarian migration. You just mentioned Syria or indeed Eritrea. These are countries clearly in trouble and there's people... Uh, yeah, crossing the Mediterranean, asking asylum, and in most cases actually getting refugee status for that reason. But we also have to acknowledge there is a big chunk of that migration that is about people who's looking for jobs. And there is this massive toleration all across Europe, including the UK, for those people picking up those jobs. So there's only two ways you can solve this. Either you cut away the labor demand, but it would mean massive economic sacrifices, a real willingness of governments to crack down on illegal labor, and I doubt they're willing to do that. But this is going to have real consequences. The other thing is create more legal channels for lower-skilled migration. And that is a huge taboo in Europe and in the United States of America. But that is actually the main explanation why we see this continuing. Apart from, of course, the asylum element, 
on asylum, I think you create yourself a complete illusion if you think that in the future we can stop all people arriving at the border. What we've actually done in the 1990s, it made it quasi impossible for a refugee to board a plane and ask asylum, let's say on London Heathrow, because we have introduced carrier sanctions, as we call it. Basically, the private sector has to control once pe before people board planes whether they have to write papers. Well, that's been a political decision for good or bad reasons. The ultimate consequence of that has been that people who seek refuge have to make those journeys. And that is exactly why we also see boats arriving in the UK, because it's actually the only way you can apply for asylum. The only thing to solve that element, so it is the element of labor, which is actually the biggest element if you think about migration across the Mediterranean. This is between 50 and 100,000 a year, which is roughly 5% of total EU immigration, so it's sizable. But it is manageable if you would create enough legal pathways for people to do that work, either seasonal labor, like Britain is doing right now, actually, with, for instance, Central Asian countries, uh, or more long-term uh, lower-skilled labor. So we need to acknowledge that there is this real crunch for labor, particularly in the lower-skilled manual jobs. And for asylum, yeah, we have to design asylum policies that are efficient, that are good in the terms of the decisions are being taken, are well-researched, so you don't have too many appeals procedures. Uh, and the basic problem, both in Britain and the Netherlands, is that there's a huge backlog, which means that asylum seekers have to wait forever. That is not good for anybody. So you need a good system. You need to clear the backlogs so that people who apply for asylum get clarity, let's say within half a year or so, that they, whether they can stay or not. If you allow people just stay on, put them in semi-prisons or just in neighborhoods where there's absolutely nothing to do, if you don't allow them to work, and that often can last for years, you set yourself up for trouble. It's also very costly. So in a way, the policies have set up this crisis. So the asylum crisis is an asylum reception crisis, and that reflects a lack of political will to design an immigration system that actually works. At this very moment, large, well-organized caravans of migrants are marching toward our southern border. These are tough people in many cases. A lot of young men, strong men. Some people call it an invasion. It's like an invasion. What do you make of the British government's Rwanda policy now and the political contortions that they are going through? It seems an act of desperation if I look at it from a distance. It's been such a massive failure that tried to do everything to distract the attention away from, from other issues. And I think that's also what you see in other European countries, that the asylum issue in particular. I've also seen it in the Netherlands over the last election cycle. Although asylum is actually not that big of a share of immigrants. Um, I think a longer term, I just made some calculations for the UK. I think it's 5% of all immigration is asylum into the UK on a long-term long -term average. But it's a, it's a political distraction from other issues. Like if you talk about migration, for instance, legal migration, really, really increasing fast to the UK, which was not really, I think, foreseen in the whole Brexit procedure. So to me, it seems like a distraction. Yeah, th there seems to be an almost desperate attempt to hold on to this idea, although I think all experts agree this won't really solve any issue in the first place. And can we just be clear, part of this political debate in Britain is a confusion between migration 
and asylum seekers and refugees and so on, isn't it? It's almost as if there is a political will to blur the lines because these aren't stupid people that are doing this. But it does seem as if the rhetoric is very confused. Yeah, when I did background research for my book, I became more and more aware that I no longer believe that politicians don't know these things. The same is true for external European border policies. We've been trying the same thing for over 30 years now. And I no longer believe that the experts, the high-level policymakers, really believe those policies will ever have any long-lasting result because they have failed in the past and they will fail in the future. It's a pretty conscious thing what's happening on the side of politics. And indeed, uh, asylum is an important issue, but it's a relatively minor issue if you talk about numbers. But we get the impression, because all the focus is on boats to the UK, boats across the Mediterranean, that this is the essence of migration. I, for instance, looked at African migration to Europe and nine out of 10 Africans moving to Europe moves legally with passports and visas in their hand. But it's not the impression you will get if you look at television. Yeah, so I think that confusion is um, is quite convenient in many ways from a political point of view. Because the real issue has been this massive rise in legal migration. And the irony of the thing is we've seen this in the past in, in many other cases where borders were closed for for migrants who, who came from neighboring countries, that you know, naturally migration is, is a process of going back and forth. And if you look at the actual dynamics, for instance, of migration from uh, the accession countries in Eastern Europe to Britain, it was predominantly a matter of people going back and forth. What ill-conceived migration restrictions typically do is push temporary migrants into permanent settlement. And of course, in the case of Britain, the whole labor shortage issue wasn't, of course, solved by Brexit. So what you see is a shift from migration from European countries to migration from outside Europe. So it's basically a shift and an increase in migration, partly also by the whole labor crunch we had after the COVID, of course, combined with Brexit, led to this record level of immigration to Britain. One of the things that really struck me reading your book was the parallel between Brexit and Donald Trump building a wall and that argument that you've just made, which is that if in the southern United States, for example, people came and went backwards and forwards across the border to fill in labor shortages in predominantly Texas and California, but then they, most of them went home. But can you explain why both building the wall and Brexit meant that more people come and then stay? Yeah, the more difficult it is to come, the more people stay. And so if migration is free, let's say, let's say within, like within Britain, if you, you can find a job in London and you live somewhere else in a small place in England or elsewhere in Great Britain, if you lose that job, you're quite likely to go back or to go to some other place to find a job. But if you had done a lot of effort to get in, you won't go back that easily because you will lose all your investment and you have no guarantee you can come back again. The United States is actually dates back already to the late 1980s. So many people think it was Trump that built the wall, but it's been a, a whole succession of administrations in, in the US since 1986 have been trying to secure this border. But what it did is it pushed Mexicans and other Latin Americans into permanent settlement. And the end result is that you find yourself in a situation with 11 million undocumented migrants in the United States. Completely not the intention of the policy. Um. How helpful or unhelpful then is the rhetoric? Because we've heard so much in Britain about it spinning out of control. And I was looking at what Mrs. Thatcher said back in the early 80s, that the trouble is we're being swamped, was her word, by people from a different culture. How helpful is that to solving perhaps the problem that they're trying to articulate? 
no, it is it is spreading fear, and fear is never a good basis for a good policy. I mean, I think all Western countries need to have debates about the future of their societies and economies. Do we want uh, big groups of migrants who have no papers uh, doing all sorts of jobs? In many ways, these people have become the new servants of the Western economies. Do we really want to live in such economies and in in societies in the future? Well, these are good discussions. But when politicians start spe- speaking about invasions and, and swarms of people c- across the Mediterranean, it is not helpful, obviously. It, it helps to sow fear. And fear is never a good basis for a level-headed policy. And this is why we get all these policies that are more trying to play to the crowd, let's say, build a wall, shut the border, and often they have counterproductive results because they're not really based on a real knowledge of how migration works, and they only look at people coming in. They don't look at the whole process because a scientific view of migration, you would, we, you would ask, have to ask the question, what is the effect on any form of immigration policy, on the overall pattern of circulation, so the coming and going of people? And then you really understand that in many cases, when the causes of migration are not taken away, and the biggest cause of migration also to the UK is labor shortages, um, if you don't take away that labor demand, there is no way you're going to stop it. What you may actually do in many cases is, is create more permanent migration if you make it more difficult to enter because the jobs still have to be filled. And what also happens is that actually most undocumented migrants came in legally. These are overstayers. So even a perfect wall will not stop that. And the last thing, and I think this really shows the huge gap between what politicians say and do, and this goes for both left and right, is that there is a lot of talk about, for instance, in Britain, there was this campaign a few years ago about creating a hostile environment towards illegal migration. But if you look at the actual numbers of employers that get prosecuted for employing undocumented workers, it's incredibly low. We talk about a few dozens a year or even less. And that is an acceptable business risk for most people employing undocumented migrants. And this is what I call the, the big taboo or the, 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 the elephant in the room of the whole debate, something everybody knows. Of course, most migrants are legal, but there is a fair share of illegal immigration also to the UK, and everybody knows what jobs these people do. But this is something that is not politically acknowledged, and it shows this huge gap between the tough talk and the practice. And... There is no significant difference between right and left-wing governments in terms of practices of policy making, And that is because both the left and the right are torn on immigration. And I have to simplify here a little bit, but basically the pattern is the following. That the right-wing, and on the one hand, you have the cultural conservative voice. Hey, we don't want people from other cultures coming in. At the same time, a very strong business lobby that pushes politicians to turn a blind eye, open the borders, and indeed blind, turn a blind eye against uh, undocumented migrants doing all sorts of useful jobs that are actually very needed. And of course, labor traditionally being torn. Trade unions who have been very skeptical about labor immigration have often portrayed immigrants as people who would be crowding out native workers. And on the other hand, I would say the more humanitarian wing of left-wing parties who push for human rights and we have to provide a safe home for refugees and we have to defend the rights of migrant workers. So all these parties are torn and of course all governments are under all these pressures. And what you see in practice is that the business lobby has the upper hand in general. And this is why we massively tolerate illegal labor and why we have actually opened borders and not closed them. So this is growing disjuncture. And I think that is really problematic because it's extremely dishonest towards the public. One big point you make in the book 
is that the only advanced economy that really you think may have got some kind of solution to this problem is Japan because they are prepared to sacrifice a degree of growth and actually to keep some workers working later till they're older. Is that the choice? You can either have an open economy and relatively uh, good growth or you decide that you're prepared, the business lobby has to sacrifice growth because they won't get the workers. To a, to a large degree, yes. I mean, even Japan cannot escape the fact that they also need immigrants. Uh, so all wealthy societies. I mean, if you don't like immigrants, immigration is the price you have to pay for being a wealthy market economy. I mean, it's, that's the bottom line. So all rich countries have positive net migration. That's a fact we have to live with. So you can't have your cake and eat it too, in that sense. But there, within that margin, there, there, you can do something policy-wise. But if you really want to do something about migration, you really have to do something about your economy and your society quite fundamentally. Now, the trend we've seen in the West, in Britain and the United States in particular, has this drive towards less government interference in markets, the liberalization of labor markets, make, make it much easier to hire people temporarily, less government interference in recruitment. In the past, governments would recruit workers these days we have basically outsourced this to the private sector. So this whole drive towards economic liberalization is not compatible with a wish for less immigration. If you are really genuine about wanting to have less immigration, I'm not saying that's my political point of view, but if you have that political point of view, which as such I don't think is a legitimate, if you don't wrap it into sort of racist language, yeah, I want less immigration. Okay, let's talk and let's look at the science. And then you have to really something about that labor demand. And yeah, one of the things Japan seems to have opted for is uh, having people work way longer. Many Japanese people work until the age of 70, 75. Because if we do early retirement, we had, still need people to pick up those jobs. Robot technology has been a big thing in Japan as well. And Japan seems to have opted for much lower economic growth. And these are things you could choose for. My real question is, do we want such a thing? That's the honest debate we need to have, what kind of society we want to live in. But I have to put to you, having read your book, you destroy about 22, I think it is, myths about migration. You've just done so in about 20 minutes in our conversation here. But you also say, right at the start of the book, that when you make this case very articulately, based on evidence, based on research, politicians say, Professor de Haas, thank you very much. That's very interesting. I can't possibly do any of this because that's political suicide. I mean, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. Yeah. That's pretty much what they've told you, isn't it? Yeah, that's, that's what they would lit- some of them have literally told me, and I understand that. What we see is a huge fear all across the political board. I mean, you see it on the left and the right to, to tell an honest story about migration. We've become so stuck in this old narrative. Those policies that evidently did not work. I mean, I always say, in the, for instance, the Mediterranean, this goes back all the way to 1991, because that's what the, was the year that southern European countries introduced visas for Africans, African workers from North Africa in particular, because of the Schengen agreements. They actually didn't want to, because Spain was quite happy with Moroccans going back and forth to Spain to do some harvest work and go back to Morocco afterwards. And since then, we've tried to combat smuggling, uh, stop illegal migration. But the irony of it was that as long as there was high labor demand and any Moroccan who manages to get to Spain could earn five to ten times more they could work, they could earn back in Morocco, people were still highly motivated to do that. And the more we cracked down on it, the more we fueled the business model of smugglers. So the irony is 
that we always hear politicians about undermining the business model of smugglers, but their own policies actually create a bigger market for smuggling. Of course, smuggling is illegal, but it's not the cause of illegal migration. So I say politicians need to gather the courage. And this is not a plea for open borders and things like that, because it's often the counter-argument you get. Now, the problem is that you need to tell an honest story to people. You need to tell an honest story, first of all, there is a certain need for migrant labor. That's the kind of open secret we have in a society. So we need to have an honest debate about immigration. Politicians so far have been so afraid because once they will say that, they're afraid of being portrayed as open border idiots, basically. But I think we can no longer afford to continue on this path. I mean, what we right now see also with the Stop the Boats, but also in the Netherlands, shows to me that we are at the end of the credibility line, really, of this narrative. And I'm actually quite hopeful because... One of the most paradoxical things is that public opinion in Britain, in the Netherlands, in many Western countries, is actually gradually moving towards more positive attitudes towards immigration. That's a huge paradox. So most people have quite mixed opinions about immigration. On the extremes, you always have people who love migration or hate migration, but most people are quite sensible about immigration. And actually, growing up in big cities, in in societies that have become used to immigration, people tend to adopt more mixed, favorable opinions towards immigration and understand, most people do understand that migrants do useful work. They may have fears when they see images on the television and here, I think, is where the damage comes. If politicians represent, for instance, what's happening across the Channel or across the Mediterranean as this foreign invasion, yeah, they paralyze the debate. So this claim that politicians often make, well, we just have to do what the people want. Now, what we actually see in opinion research is that the public opinion is not turning against immigration. Actually, it's gradually shifting towards more positive attitudes. So I do believe there is a potential for a new generation of politicians to tell an honest story about immigration. That is, acknowledges that migration has good sides and sometimes also bad sides, but it's not something we can just think or wish away. And that has been very much the line of talk so far. Politicians telling an honest story. Well, I think we can buy we can buy into that. <laughs> Optimistic well, that is. Uh, at least I think the public has the right to know. I mean, that's why actually why I wrote the book. It's something I want to emphasize. I did not write a book for politicians. In a way, I gave up hope. Uh, But I do think uh, voters uh, need to understand. Politicians will always tell, of course, stories that are not completely representative of the truth. And you need to convince voters. And politics is to some extent by nature a polarizing uh, business. I understand that. But I do think voters and also media journalists deserve to know what what we know as migration researchers, which is indeed... uh, become a bit more skeptical towards all sorts of claims and not uh, take at face value whatever politicians say about the issue. Then we would be one step ahead, I think. Professor Heinde Haas, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now?, the politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? 
That's Oh God, What Now? With me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez. Out now, wherever you get your podcasts. A few years ago, I worked on a BBC radio series about what being British meant to people across the United Kingdom. A taxi driver who heard the series used the opportunity of being stuck in heavy traffic with me in the back of the cab to tell me all the things I got wrong. He wanted more English faces on television. Immigrants were taking over the country. Some of them didn't drink alcohol, very un-British. So English pubs were closing. When I suggested that migration was a central part of British history, the driver angrily shot back that his family were pure English for generations. But then I noticed his taxi identity card. His last name was Fleming. From Flanders, I said. Your family were Flemish. You've Belgian roots. It suddenly went very quiet in the cab. I'm Gavin Essler, and this is Not a Drill. This is Not A Drill, was written and presented by Gavin Esler and produced by me, Robin Lieber. Our music's by Paul Hartnell, art by Jim Parrott, and social media by Jess Harpin. Group editor is Andrew Harrison, executive producer Martin Boytosh, and This Is Not A Drill is a Podmasters production.